0: Well, I'm curious. Have any of you ever been conned, tricked, deceived? Not very nice, is it? Probably most of us have experienced uh, a sense of being violated in some way, where you've you've been ripped off. You, there's been some extortion going on in in your life in some way or some shape or form, and that's not nice. That's a terrible thing. I don't I don't wish that even upon my enemies. But it's sad. It's even worse, in fact. The actions of those who swindle people in God's name—they break the third commandment. Use uh, by the third commandment, I mean blasphemy, and in their efforts to actually break the eighth commandment, which is theft. And that's what Peter Peter's talking about that here in our in our passage today. And we've learned in church history, religious extortion was something that was rampant for many centuries. And it was during Martin Luther's day, during, during uh pre-Reformation time period, particularly 16th century. You know, you've heard the stories where Roman Catholic Church was pressuring poor people into purchasing fake promises of God's favor, uh, and they called those things indulgences. And you'll see a picture on the screen up here of of Johann Tetzel, which was the guy who really ticked Martin Luther off because he was the guy selling the indulgences to his people and his church. And that is, is, of course, what provoked, uh, here we got 500 years later, the the writing of the 95 Theses. Sadly, God's grace and blessings are still up for sale in the religious marketplace. Oh, they, they may not be so uh, in-your-face as Tetzel's indulgences were, but uh, nevertheless, the modern indulgences are no longer the, the exclusive domain of Roman Catholicism. Sadly, people within Protestantism have have uh, infiltrated and, and selling their own form of indulgences. These charlatans are just as skilled as Tetzel, when it comes to swindling people in churches and without a doubt the most blatant form of modern indulgences are peddled by those within what i would call what what they call the word of faith movement or the the health wealth prosperity gospel oh they're very good at selling the modern indulgences they sell all sorts of ridiculous trinkets promising to impart god's grace and favor upon people i mean You may have heard of some of these. It's very much like the old Roman Catholic relics, if you will. Uh, Some of these modern faith healers sell bottles of miraculous spring water. Uh, They might sell vials of Holy Land anointing oil, or they might sell a scrap of some ancient prayer cloth. You know, rub your hands on this, it'll heal you kind of thing, right? I mean, that's the sort of stuff going on. It's sad. People spend a lot of money for that sort of thing. But for for most of the prosperity preachers who seem to dominate so-called Christian television, they don't even need to sell these these relics and trinkets. Instead, their indulgences are sold through a, a verbal promise of healing. You know, when Benny Hinn just says, you know, send me some money and I'll pray for you. That for for a lot of people, that's enough. You know, they 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 say, you know, I'll give you favor or you know, I'm going to help you with your finances. You know, you just need uh, to first sow a financial seed. Send me a $1,000 or whatever. And, of course, it has to be made payable to the preacher. And there's a parallel, by the way, between Johann Tetzel and the 16th century and these television charlatans that are seen on the TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network. In fact, their modern version of indulgence racketeering far exceeds uh, the sort of tactics that Tetzel ever used. I mean, it exceeds both in the in the scale and the sin. I'll, I'll give you some examples uh, in a moment. But clearly, the court, the sort of blueprint that Tetzel used has been replicated and is being abused through these modern media platforms. And basically, here's their plan, folks. It's, it, they're not even shy about it. They're in your face about this. The plan is basically target the poor and the most vulnerable people, make, make grandiose promises that, that aren't theirs to make. Then you just squeeze every last drop of money out of the victims, and then you use the proceeds for your own extravagance. Buying multi-million dollar mansions and so forth, right? So basically, it's like Robin Hood in reverse, right? You know, you know the Robin Hood story: steal from the rich to give to the poor. Well, this is the exact opposite. I'm going to I'm going to steal from the poor people so I can become wealthy. That's basically what they're doing. And by the way, it doesn't end there. Giving money in response to some television sales pitch is just the gateway to further extortion. Uh, for example, I read about uh, Benny Hinn, for example. Uh, he, he sends out these support letters. And he has shamelessly pushed his version of the modern-day indulgence on on people. On, on one occasion, he asked for donations over $1,000. And in return, he promised everyone who did that, every donor who sent in over $1,000, he would put a plaque on the inside of his private jet on the walls, and he promised that he would pray, to remember to pray for those people as he was traveling in his private jet. Another letter promised that for a gift of any size, Benny Hinn would supernaturally protect the donor's relatives from ever getting cancer. Just send me some money, and I'll pray for your mother, and she'll never get cancer. You know, that's the sort of thing he did. But Hinn's outrageous claims are nothing new. They're They're not out of the ordinary. This stuff goes on all the time. They're basically just the normal thing of the charismatic fundraising that's been going on for many decades now. So the practices that we saw Johann Tetzel doing in the 16th century are kind of going on. They've just been revised and upgraded, if you will. And so these modern peddler of indulgences are preying on vulnerable people. And it's often people who can least afford it who buy into their scams. They're, they're blindly hoping that God is somehow going to unleash His blessings on them in return for sending money to th- these these uh prosperity gospel preachers. But the only ones who ever seem to get rich are the, the faith healers, the prosperity theology preachers. And there's plenty of Softer and more civilized versions of indulgences, by the way, that are uh, sadly still plaguing the church today. As I, as I've been telling you, Joel Austin would be one of them. See, Austin's a prime example of kind of a softer cell. He's he's not as bold as Benny Hinn. See, he believes the same prosperity theology, but he kind of shies away from the the very bizarre behavior and the obscene promises of some of these other health and wealth, prosperity, gospel preachers. Basically, what Osteen does is essentially he sells himself and his lifestyle. Right? You know, here, look how glamorous I am. You can be like me. You know, buy my books. (laughs) For the price of my book or or a ticket to one of my motivational speeches, you can learn how to unlock the same kind of blessings that God has given to me. That's what he does. By the way, in one sense, preachers all look the same, right? I mean, for, for the most part, they're, they're pretty much the same height, you know, the same weight, kind of, you know, we're all wearing clothes, you know, it's kind of obvious, right? Uh, well, no, it's not. I mean, preachers all look the same for the most part. It can be difficult to distinguish a false preacher from a true preacher. How do you tell the difference between a faithful preacher and a false preacher? Well, sometimes that can be difficult, and thankfully the Apostle Peter here gives us a good way to, to discern false preachers. Peter basically gives us three points in this in today's text. So here's, here's the three points, okay? Peter just tells you to look at their mouth, look at their eyes, and look at their heart. That's the points that Peter gives us today. So what do false preachers say with their mouth? What do false preachers see with their eyes? And what do false preachers desire in their heart? That's Peter's three points he's given us in today's text. So let's read the words of the living God in 2 Peter 2, starting in the second part of verse 10. 2 Peter 2, 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not propound, pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their own destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. And that ends the the paragraph we're going to look at for today. So here's your proposition that God wants us to consider from this text. God wants you to discern false teachers by what they say. What they see and what they desire. So we're going to learn how to spot a false teacher. So right, you know, they don't go around wearing shirts saying "I'm a false teacher." You know, there's no there's no uh, neon sign above their head pointing at them. You know, there's nothing obvious like that. They're they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. They look like you. They look like a sheep. So how do you spot a false teacher? Well, number one, Peter says, discern what false teachers say. What are they saying in verses 10 and 11? Well, they're actually mocking the devil and his demons. They're mocking the devil and his demons. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, notice the word blaspheme. To blaspheme here means to slander, to speak lightly or profanely of sacred things. Well, how do we know these sacred things are in regard to the devil and the demons? Well... What, what are the false teachers blaspheming? Well, in this verse, it says they're blaspheming the glorious ones, the ESV says, or your new KJV says they're blaspheming the dignitaries. That's a reference to demons who are possessing a supernatural being. It's kind of hard to uh to, to translate in some ways. So that's where you, you're kind of getting this general vague uh, English translation. So Although the false teachers were just mere mortals, they're just human beings, they're arrogantly considering themselves superior to these angelic beings. Are they? Well, no, the Bible says that's not the case. Fallen angels, even fallen angels, wield extensive influence and power in this world. They are alive and well on planet Earth and have great power. In fact, if you read the book of Daniel, it gives you an idea of how powerful they are. Uh, the Bible says in the book of Daniel that a demon actually hindered the angel Gabriel for 21 days. Now, what does that look like? I don't know. But the angel hindered, okay, the demon hindered Gabriel for 21 days. And so God sends uh, the archangel Michael to deal with the demon to help Gabriel. And of course, Michael is more powerful than the other angels and demons. So he he overcome, so that Gabriel was able to get through. And so the false teachers of Peter's day, they mocked demons and mocked Satan. They were fearless about that, presuming that they were somehow greater than fallen angels. Well, that, that same kind of an attitude from Peter's day is carried over even in today. Many modern false prophets, at least certainly in the extreme parts of the charismatic movement, make fortunes off it, off doing this very thing. Supposedly, they're able to bind demons and damn demons and, and, and do what the Bible says that Jesus is able to do. And, and they make a lot of money off doing this. They, as if they had real power over Satan and the demons. And they they talk like there's demons over everything. By the way, if you listen to them talk, you know the 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 demon of bad health and the demon of darkness and the demon of you know your dryer is not working and the, your tractor broke. Oh well, I'm going to come and I'm going to deal with that that demon that you know has caused your tractor to break down, right? And and you know the the weather and you know the list goes on and on and on, right? You know, every single problem has some demon, and you just pay them enough money and they're going to come and and bind that demon. They get rich off that sort of thing. Well, in contrast, we, we see Scripture says even the holy angels, the good angels, like Gabriel, Michael, and so forth, even though they're greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the demons. You know, they're not making jokes like some people make. The, you ever seen these cartoon things? Or, you know, supposedly, you know, Satan has, you know, this red suit and horns a pitchfork and a tail. You know, they make all kinds of jokes about Satan and demons. The Bible says don't do that. And even from their exalted position, the holy angels do not disrespect these fallen angels. They know them better than you do, and they show great respect to the to these fallen angels. In fact... The companion passage in Jude, I'll show you, it's on the screen here. Even the archangel Michael doesn't show disrespect to Satan. Here's what it says in Jude 9. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. He showed great respect to the devil. Well, if Michael the Archangel, (laughs) written in Holy Scripture, is showing respect to the devil, then so should we. Just like Michael, believers should not confront Satan and his demons alone. They're to be taken very seriously. You should seek God's power against the demons. Yet, false teachers, they just, they go ahead and do it anyway. Why do they do that? You say, man, that's, that's foolish. Why did they do that? Well, the answer is found in verse 10. It's right there in verse 10. It says, They are bold and willful. They are bold and willful. Uh, these two words are just identifying the general attitude of these false teachers. The basic idea is they respect no one. They have no, they have no respect. Nothing seems to restrain them. The, the very word bold means they're fearless and daring. Uh, so one who is bold, he just rides roughshod over anyone, anything that gets in his way. It doesn't matter the rights of anyone, anything, the opinions, interests of others. doesn't matter if they're human or angels. just rides roughshod over them. And the one who is willful is just arrogant. Willful means obstinately self-willed. It's This kind of person does it deliberately. They do it intentionally. It means they can't be reasoned with. It doesn't matter how much you talk to them. The idea is no amount of conversation is going to stop this false teacher from doing or teaching what they want. And you know why? Because they're bold and willful. The idea is they assume they're right and you're wrong. So that's why they do it. They're bold and willful. But verse 12 says they're ignorantly blaspheming. They ignorantly blaspheme. So they think they're right, but God says they're wrong. (laughs) They're ignorant of their wrongness. So despite their... Well, look what verse 12 says. But these, these... False teachers. God describes them like irrational animals. Creatures of instinct. Born to be caught and destroyed. Blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. So here they are. Showing disrespect to Satan and the demons and everyone else for that fact. Thinking that they know more than everyone else. God says they're actually ignorant. So despite their claims to have some higher level of knowledge, to be more spiritual than everybody else, to have more power than everybody else, these false teachers are speaking out of their own ignorance. They're acting like a cow. (laughs) Irrational animals. And I use that as an example because I think all of us in here have seen cows. We know how irrational they can be. They're, they're compared to beasts here that have no rational capabilities. They're just operating on unthinking passions. They, they have just, as the Bible says, they're just creatures of instinct. It just means their responses are pre-programmed. Right? Like a computer. Uh, where do they get that from? Of course, God has pre-programmed a cow you know, with its DNA and its genes and so forth, to, to, you know, why does it eat grass? That's the way God made it. You know, why, why does it go get a drink? That's the way God made it. You know, it's just the way God made them. And so they operate on instinct because animals are not rational. They're not able to make some intellectual contribution to our society. Have you ever seen a cow write a book? Have you ever seen a cow in Parliament? No, no, that's not go there. Um You know, have you ever seen a cow invent something? Right? Have you ever seen a cow make a fence? Or, you know, whatever, right? They, they don't do that sort of thing because they're irrational creatures of instinct. In, in fact, you think about a cow, that's a good example. As it says here in, in verse 12, Most cows are just there to be captured and killed, to be destroyed, to provide meat for some other member that's farther up the food chain. Right? That's why they're there. And so for all of their claims, think about this God's illustration here, for all the claims these false teachers have, to have some higher level of spirituality and knowledge. The false teachers are really, they're over their heads. They're thinking one thing, in reality, there's something else. They, they don't have a clue about their true spirituality. And so, again, you might ask the question, are they going to get away with this? Well, again, God says, no, they're not going to get away with it. And in fact, uh, they will not go unpunished because he says they will be caught and destroyed. In other words, they're not going to escape God's future wrath. In the end, We we know what happens. The Bible says they're all going to face an eternal punishment in the lake of fire. In fact, as as verse 13 says, they're going to receive a wage. You know what a wage is, right? Verse 13 says this is what they're going to get. A wage is what you earn. They've earned something. And in this case, it's a wage for their wrongdoing. And so, in other words, they're going to get what they deserve. So how do you spot a false teacher? Just listen to what comes out of their mouth. (laughs) That's what Peter's saying. What are they saying? What are they writing in their books? What are they saying on the TV? What are they saying on their blogs, in their magazines, and so forth? Look what they say. Number two, we also need to discern what false teachers see. What do they see with their eyes? Well, verse 14 tells us they have eyes full of adultery. What does that mean? Well, just literally, the text is saying here their eyes are full of an adulterous woman. As far as they're concerned, every woman they see is prey. <laughs> they they don't see the woman as a as, as sister in Christ who is made in God's image. Because these people don't have moral self-control. The problem is, by the way, it's not that you notice a beautiful woman. That's not a sin. The problem is that they lusted after every woman they saw. They could not look at a woman without fantasizing about that woman in an immoral way. And so every woman becomes a potential object of their adultery. That's, That's what Peter's saying every woman is a potential object of adultery that's that's how they it's just an object so that's what it means to that they have these eyes full of adultery so if you, you ever wondered why so many of these these guys you know on television and writing books get in trouble that's why it's it's a hard issue the, the, the way they, they view a woman is coming from their heart. What they say, as Jesus says, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. So it's all coming from, from inside them. It's, it's who they are. And so that's why verse 14 goes on to, to also tell us here that they never stop sinning. Again, look at verse 14. The, it, the ESV says they are insatiable for sin. They are insatiable for sin. The idea is that they never stop sinning. The satisfying of their lust is the false teacher's main ambition. They can't cease from sinning. It's perpetual, ongoing, habitual. The verb there in, in Greek is actually suggesting they are unable to stop, which, by the way, is another, also shows you they're unbelievers. false teachers are not Christians. There's no Galatians 5 going on here. There's no spirit versus the flesh. It's only the flesh. The flesh reigns supreme. That's all they have. And so so the flesh just keeps going and going. And they can't stop. They're in bondage, in fact. If you look look at verse 18. Verse 18. We'll see this next, well, sorry, in two weeks. Verse 18 says, For speaking... Loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for what overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. These guys are enslaved. They're in bondage. <clears throat> And the apostates consider themselves here, notice they consider themselves to be free, to have freedom. Yet they're actually in slavery. So whatever they touch, they end up defiling it. And, and whoever they, uh, they try to enlist in their, their kingdom ends up becoming a slave. So we, we've seen they got got the, these eyes for adultery. They never stop sinning. But it's sad. Who do they pick on? Who do they find? Because verse 14 says they look for unsteady souls. They look for unsteady souls. Why do they do that? Well, false teachers want to entice these un- unsteady souls. And by the way, the word entice should remind you of this picture is going to come up on the screen. Because... The idea is it's a picture of a, the, the word entice should bring to mind a fisherman baiting a hook. See, most fishermen don't throw bare hooks out to entice a fish to bite, right? That usually doesn't work. Now, it I remember one occasion it did work, but rarely does that ever work. So don't ruin my illustration here. Okay. Most of the time, fishermen bait hooks because hooks don't, you know, they're sharp, they're ugly, they're cold, right? They're not enticing, they don't look nice. And so they got to put something on the hook, so a bigger fish comes along and eats the little fish, and in the process gets hooked. The word entice here was also used of a hunter baiting a trap. Now I, I, this the next picture might make you laugh. It's supposed to make you laugh, right? When you bait a trap, right? Well, I mean, how how often does it work to stick out a trap with no bait on it, right? Even a dumb mouse rarely is going to fall for that. So you got to put a piece of cheese or some peanut butter or something on it, right? To catch the mouse or the rat or whatever it might whatever you're trying to trap. Well, Satan's no dummy. He's been around thousands of years. He he knows he could never trap us unless there's some yummy, fine bait that's going to attract you. And by the way, again, he uses the same patterns, the same model he did with Adam and Eve. Remember Satan promised Eve that if, if she and Adam just take the fruit and you'll become like God's. You'll become like little g-gods, by the way. It's funny, I've read the same thing from some of these false teachers. They're They're saying the exact same thing that Satan was telling Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. You can become like little gods. And what did they do? They ate of the forbidden tree, they took the bait, and they were trapped. So what kind of bait do false teachers use to catch people? Well, they don't use cheese. They don't put a little teeny fish on a hook. The first bait that they often use is right here in the text. It's liberty. Their first bait is liberty. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, They promise them freedom. Liberty and freedom. Same idea. They promise them freedom or liberty. Uh, That, by the way, probably means a perversion of the grace of God, because our again our companion passage in Jude says they turn the grace of God into sensuality, and so they might argue like what Paul had to deal with in Romans chapter six. You know, hey, you know you're saved by grace, so you have the freedom to do whatever you want. Just go and sin, and God's going to forgive you. So the more you sin, the more of God's grace you will be able to experience. Wow! By the way, I don't have time to get into that whole argument. Just go back and read Romans chapter six. See, see how the Holy Spirit addresses that very thing, because Paul starts Romans six off by saying, uh, "Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound?" And God just and God just comes right out and says. I forbid! Wrong! No, don't! <laughs> so the first bait that the false teachers use here is freedom. They entice you with freedom. Put freedom on the hook. Put freedom on the trap. The second bait is fulfillment. Oh man, this is, this is the buzzword with prosperity gospel preachers. Those in the word of faith movement, they love that word fulfillment it it goes right along with all their kind of sayings they they have phrases they love to repeat all the time things like do your own thing have it your way you know you can have your best life now right and have have you noticed those are quite worldly kind of ideas you know the same sort of things that mcdonald's and burger king and you know all all the other things today they use the same sort of slogans that they're, they're using. And so they'll say things like the Christian, you know, the, the Christian life that the, that the church offers, that's yeah, just old fashioned. It's outdated. We have a new lifestyle that makes you feel fulfilled, helps you find your true self. And so what happens is these unstable, unsteady souls try to find themselves. What do they end up finding? They end up losing themselves. And so, in the search for fulfillment, they become, those kind of people become very self centered, selfish, proud, and lose the opportunities for growth, for spiritual growth. I'll just give you an example of how this happens. Uh, Another one of Joel Austin's lesser known books is a book called Breakout. And it's, it's the same old message, you know, God helps those who help themselves. That, that, that's pretty much the message of the book. God helps those who help themselves. Here's just a couple quotes. It's same old message. Quotes from chapter four. Joel Austin says, right now, something is looking for you. Something already has your name on it. As long as you're doing your best to honor God and you have a heart to help others, An explosive blessing will find its way into your hands. Chapter 9, he says, If you stay on the high road and just keep being your best, you will see the hand of God at work in amazing ways. End quote. Well, don't waste your time reading the book, because it's the same sort of message. You know, God helps those who help themselves. By the way, there is no verse in the Bible that says that. So who are the people, you say, I mean, that's kind of obvious, right? You know, fulfillment is the buzzword here. So who are the people who take the bait? I mean, can anybody be so silly and foolish? Well, Peter calls them unsteady souls. Unsteady souls. See, false teachers, they're kind of like a smart lion walking the savannah you know the the smart lion doesn't go and pick on the biggest most healthy animal right you know that that huge elephant though you know that bull elephant over there you know, I'm not going to go attack him i'm going to go after this 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 poor little deer over here easy pickings right and that's what they do they pick on the unsteady souls the false teachers are they they're cap- they don't go after the strong christian who knows his bible they prey on the weak, the unstable, the, the person who supposedly just became a, made a profession of faith. I'm going to go pick on him. That's what they do. And by the way, stability is an important factor in a successful Christian life. The Bible talks about that. So just as a child has to learn to stand before they can walk and run, guess what? It's the same for the Christian. You've got to learn to stand firm in the Lord. So what's the application? Again, I hope it's obvious the application here is you know your Bible. (laughs) So you're not one of those unsteady souls. You have to study God's Word. That's not easy. It's going to be hard work. So if you're expecting something easy, well, then don't follow Christ. Because Jesus said to follow Him, you had to take up your cross. You have to deny yourself. (laughs) That's, That's hard. That's hard. Bible talks about meditating upon the Scriptures day and night. You've got to meditate on the right content. Otherwise, you're just going to be soaking in the world's philosophies, and you're going to be captured by them. You have to strive to be a theologian. You may never become one, but it won't hurt you to strive to become one. Strive to become a theologian. And by the way, those of you who I hope some of you, I think some of you probably are the in the category of the steady, stable, mature soul. Well, then it's your responsibility to help protect those who are the unsteady souls. Help those, disciple those who are the less mature, if you will. You know, the, the, the young Christian, the, the immature Christian, help them. Don't just leave them out there on their own so the wolves can come in and get them. You know, sheep needs to stay together. Sheep are defenseless creatures. So if they stay together, it makes it harder for the, the wolves to come in and get them. And they also need to stay close to their shepherd in order to find the protection from the wolves. So there's some, some, some good illustrations there, physical illustrations that help us spiritually. So how do you spot a false teacher? Well, Peter also goes on to tell us you need to discern what the false teachers desire. Now, I know you can't see their heart. Jesus said you can be a fruit inspector. And and so what they desire is going to show on the outside, on the externals. And Peter says in verse 14, notice what he says. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They have hearts trained. Trained in greed. In other words, they are greedy. The false teachers of Peter's day were interested in accumulating wealth. Why would they be interested in that? Well, they're covetous. (laughs) That's what they are. They're covetous. They want to exploit people for personal gain. Now, why would they do that? Well, that's because they're in bondage to their own lust. They have a lust for pleasure and a lust for money and wealth. And in fact, Peter says, these people have have perfected the skill of getting what they want. So how have they done that? Well, the false teacher has trained himself. You see the word trained? There, the word trained, interesting word. The word trained in Greek is gymnazo. Gymnazo should sound like an English word to you. Because we get the English word gymnasium from gymnazo. They have gymnasiumed themselves in greed, if you will. The idea, by the way, is it's just an athletic term. Uh, It just means they've exercised, they've disciplined themselves, they have trained themselves, they have taught themselves. You say, what's the point here? Well, the false teachers have exercised their hearts toward greed. They've disciplined their minds to love money. It's, it's purposeful. It's not an accident. In fact, I want you to see what William Barclay, who is a commentator, what William Barclay says. I love this. He says, quote, The picture is a terrible one. These people have actually trained and equipped and taught their minds and hearts to concentrate on nothing but the forbidden desire. They've deliberately fought with conscience until they've destroyed it, They've deliberately wrestled with God until they have thrown God out of life, end quote. So it it is purposeful. Do you get that? They are in outright rebellion against God because of their own covetousness. By the way, covetousness is just its an insatiable desire for more. Uh, They want more money. They want more power. They they want more prestige. So the covetous heart is an empty pit never satisfied and so it explains why the bible says in timothy that the love of money is a root to all kinds of evil because when a person just craves more money then that person is willing to commit any other sin they crave the money so much i'm going to break any of the other commandments to get my money he's already broken the first two of the ten commandments (laughs) he's not loving god he has another idol. He's made another god, essentially himself. And so he's already broken the first two commandments. What makes you think he's going to obey all the other eight commandments? So this this kind of person willing to do this is willing to steal, lie, cheat, commit adultery, take God's name in vain, blaspheme, and and, and so forth. Is it any wonder that Jesus warned us to beware of covetousness? You say, why? Well, not only does it destroy these unsteady souls, but it actually captures and enslaves the covetous one. See, covetousness is is like a trap. Let me illustrate it this way. I, I've heard this many times over the years. I like the illustration. And I, I read somewhere that uh, people in Africa have devised a clever way. You'll see in this picture. They've devised a clever way to catch monkeys. See, what they do to catch the monkeys because monkeys can be a bit cheeky and hard to catch at times. So what they do is they make a hole in a gourd that's just large enough for the monkey to get his hand or his paw in. And then they fill the gourd with nuts that the monkey wants to eat, and then they tie the gourd to a tree. And so at night, the monkeys reach into the gourd to try to get these yummy nuts out of there, and they find they can't pull their paw out of the gourd because their paw is now full of nuts. Oh, hey, I can't get it out of the hole. Of course, the monkey could let go of the nuts. Logical, right? But they're irrational animals, creatures of instinct. They could let go of the nuts and could escape quite easily if they wanted, but he doesn't want to get rid of the nuts. He doesn't want to forfeit those nuts. And so he ends up being captured, and often they end up eating the monkey. It's easy to come up and take out the monkey, He's caught and destroyed, Peter says. Well, sadly, this is what happens to many false teachers because they're greedy. They can't get their hand out of the gourd. <laughs> their hands. You ever you ever had your hand caught in the cookie jar? Oh, I have. Hands caught in the cookie jar. Scott Thomas. You know, whenever they use your middle name, you know you're in trouble, right? Is that you in the cookie jar? Oh no. <laughs> I have eyes behind my head. Yeah, I know you do. right? Their hands caught in the cookie jar, so to speak. Well, I thought of giving you some illustrations, but Peter gives you a, the, the, a great example here from the Old Testament, coming from the book of Numbers. And Peter just says these, these false teachers are greedy like Balaam. Look at verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. In case you're not familiar with Numbers, the book of Numbers, Balaam is a classic example of a prophet who is motivated by financial gain. The Bible says he was a Gentile prophet, he was not of Israel, and he tried to curse the Jews. You say, why would he try to curse the Jews? Doesn't the Bible say those who curse God's people are not going to come to a good end? Yeah. So pretty dumb, apparently he didn't read the Old Testament. But uh, the king of the Moabites, by the name of Balak, was afraid of Israel, and so he turned to Balaam for help you're a king and you want help you turn to a false prophet basically what he did so balaam knew it was somehow he knew it was wrong to cooperate with balak but the bible says his heart was covetous he was greedy he wanted money and honor that the king of moab was promising to him and so even though he knew the truth of god he knew the will of god he desperately abandoned the right way and he went astray. So he's a perfect illustration. So what happened? Well, here's what happened. God told Balaam not to help Balak, not to help the Moabites. And interesting enough, when you read the book of Numbers, Balaam actually did what God wanted him to do at first. He obeyed. But then Balak, the king, promised more money and more honor to Balaam. And then Balaam decided he's going to do what a lot of Christians who claim to be Christians, do. And it's, you know, if you come with more money and more honor and prestige, what do you do? Oh, let me pray about that. So Balaam says, well, let me pray about that. Yeah, I'll do that, right? He, he didn't really pray about it, did he? No, of course not. So he, he did reconsider the matter, but sadly, sadly, Balaam went for the money, went for the honor, and when he started to go astray, what did God do? <laughs> Well, he's not listening to God, so God uses his donkey to talk to him. And so God rebuked the disobedient prophet through the mouth of the donkey. And in the end, it's interesting, God didn't actually permit Balaam to curse Israel. Instead, God turned Balaam's curse into a blessing. And so even though Balaam was not able to curse Israel, sadly, the story doesn't end well because he was able to tell the king King Balak, how he could defeat Israel. And it's a sad story. But here's the illustration that Peter's using. See, in in Peter's day, there were false prophets and false teachers. Today, we got false prophets and false teachers. And and today, they're no different than Peter's day. In fact, every modern-day Balaam has his or her price. They can be bought because they're greedy. Oh, they—they they might appear on the outside to be in it for the ministry because they love people or whatever, but it doesn't take them take long to realize no, they're actually in it for the money, and so when the price is right, then they're willing to compromise. They'll—they'll—they'll they'll, they'll exchange principle for profit, exchange for what is right for what is wrong. It reminds me of a story I read this past week. There was a crooked bank officer who approached uh, a junior clerk and he whispered to him one afternoon. He said, Hey, hey, if I gave you $25,000, would you help me? And and what I mean by help, you know, we'll just kind of fix the books a little bit, you know, kind of make a few lucrative adjustments to the financial books. And the clerk responded, yeah, I suppose I could do that for $25,000. So his boss leaned over to him and said, hey, would you do it for $100? The clerk was insulted, and he replied, no way. What do you think I am, a common thief? The bank officer answered, we've already established that. Now we're just negotiating the price. <laughs> And here's the point of that uh, kind of funny story. The point is that every fake has his or her price. Every fake has his or her price. And if these people lack integrity, and so they're, if they're willing to do anything to feed their greed, they have a price. Peter, by the way, in verse 15, he calls this the wages of unrighteousness. But too often these false prophets forget Though their exploits can seem profitable in the short term, their wicked work is going to ultimately earn them the wages of sin. And you know Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. By the way, the rest of the story for Balaam, the wages of sin earned him death. You can read the book of Joshua, because Numbers doesn't tell you this. Joshua illustrated the ultimate end of false prophets who are on the wrong side. (laughs) Because the book of Joshua says that the sons of Israel killed Balaam. So, there again, we see biblical truth coming true, showing us that the wages of sin was death. In that case, physical death. So let me ask you, how are you going to avoid the con man? How are you going to avoid being ex- exploited? How are you going to spot the false teacher? How are you going to know when false teaching's in a book? My friend, God has given you an inspired word. We call it scripture. We call it the Bible. So that you're now able to discern a false teacher and his false teachings. You say, well, what is discernment? Well, I like this definition. Discernment is the ability to judge well. It's the ability to judge well. How are you going to be able to judge well? What does God? What does God want us to judge well? Well, He wants us to be able to spot false teachers. He wants us to have discernment to, to know what they're like. He's given us descriptions. He's given us the doom of the false teachers. He showed us their corrupted eyes and mouth and their corrupted hearts. So basically, Peter's told us to discern what false teachers say. Peter's told us to discern what the false teachers see. Peter's told us to discern what false teachers desire. So may God enable you, by His grace, to be discerning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for giving us discernment. Giving us your spirit. Giving us your word. Give us the ability to discern these things in these false prophets and false teachers so that we would, we would know when they're saying something that is unbiblical. When, help us to, to see even what's going on in their heart. That we would be fruit inspectors. That we would be able to see these wolves in sheep's clothing. Protect us from them. May we protect each other. May we help each other, stay together, stay close to the shepherd so that we would not be attacked by these wolves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.